Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. È mezzanotte. È l'ora dei vampiri. È l'ora di Dracula. No, no. Dracula, Dracula, Dracula. Vampiro dal nero mantello. Di notte tu succhi nel collo. Le donne di giovane età. Dracula, Dracula, Dracula. Coi bianchi affilati canini. Tu fai spaventare i bambini. Le mamme, le nonne, i papà. Richard, that peppy song was Dracula Cha-Cha by Bruno Martino from the 1959 album The Great Successes of Bruno Martino. This song is from a film. It was performed on screen in the 1962 film Two Weeks in Another Town. And that is one of the films we're not talking about today <laughs> because that song is also in Uncle Was a Vampire. What's the other one? Music plays a part in that as well as parts in most of this director's other movies. This would be Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein from 1974. These two films are very different. One is definitely a true classic in every sense of the word and is a true homage to the classics in which it is trying to emulate. The other film is a lesser known film that up until recently really hasn't been available in any good quality visual presentations. That's, of course, we're talking about Uncle Was a Vampire, which is now available in probably the best version that we're going to see of it. It's still not 100% for 1959. There's still some, some flaws, I think. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club, and I want to say, if anyone's been listening, and you know very well, Richard, that I am not a fan of horror comedies. This episode will be interesting. I may wrestle with some personal demons as I come <laughs> to uh, sort of reconcile the feelings I have for these movies and my general you know, dislike of horror comedies. So I hope people will indulge me on that journey. And who are you, sir? Well, I am Richard Chamberlain, and you can uh, find me at monsterreviewkid.wordpress.com. We do have a lot, not only two great movies, but we've got quite a bit of old business. I've got quite a bit of new business. There's just yes. a lot going on. It seems like after the lull of the post-New Year. So let me bang the gavel and get this meeting called to order. And let's start off with our roll call of new members. We do have five new members on our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. I will start out and welcome verbally Rory Raven, Amy McGill, Kevin Mallon, Christopher Joseph Michael Mezzaluecki Cunio. And, and I, at <laughs> any point, butchered any part of that, which I think is probably a good chance. I apologize. Welcome to the to the welcome, uh, Chris. <laughs> and you know, we were supposed to take turns and each do one. I think you squeezed in like five different names there. I, I did, uh, and Peter. we have one more. We have one more to. to yes, make. I know, Lori Ann. <laughs> we, we probably maybe. I we hope I pronounced that correctly. I think I think yes, I think you did. We probably should have saved Christopher for the end because yeah, that was that was definitely. Uh, 
a uh, showstopper. We had to it stop was, and talk yes, about it. Absolutely. Now let's move into old business. And sadly, we're going to start out. We had three losses since our last episode. And I think we've probably called them out on our various outlets, but I just want to hear, uh, recognize three that it affected me personally, just because they're favorites. And in two out of three, I've had the, well, we both have had the uh, occasion to meet them. We lost Raquel Welch at the age of 82, Rico Browning at the age of 93, and Birdie Gordon at the age of 100. They say these things come in three. And although Raquel Welch isn't, I wouldn't consider her a horror scream queen or anything like that, but definitely some cred and definitely a icon in just the world of movies in general. Yeah. You know, with Raquel Welch, I have absolutely never seen, what is it, 1 million years BC? I I know. It's one of those classics that for some reason I just never saw as a kid and I still haven't seen as an adult. It's on my list of things to want to see, um, but I haven't seen it yet. And so I really need to correct that, I think, with the passing of Raquel Welch. For me, I, my connection with her is in a Fantastic Voyage. I think a stronger connection goes to the other two gentlemen who you and I both have met at, at Monster Bash. I look right now on my wall here to my right, I've got a, a lobby card of War of the Colossal Beast signed by Bert I. Gordon. On the other room on my wall, I've got a drawing of the creature from the Black Lagoon done by local artist Bill Hook and signed by Rico Browning. On a brighter note, I was actually on a trip when I heard the news of Raquel Welch. I was in New York City. My daughter and I went for my birthday weekend, and I haven't written about these or posted, but I just thought I'd real quickly share some of the cool monster kid things I saw while I was there. We went to MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, and saw the Guillermo del... I don't know. I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Del Toro's Pinocchio had an exhibit, which was just fascinating. It had uh, a lot of the actual, I guess I'll call them sets. I mean, they're, of course, tiny, but they were the full actual little sets they used in making of the movie. And I don't know if anyone's seen that yet. We, I had not. My daughter had. But... We had a nice delay uh, at the airport coming back. And so we actually watched it on Netflix. And I have to say, I'm glad I saw the exhibit first because it just added a whole nother level of awe and wonder to watching the movie. I mean, it's amazing as it is, but to sort of beforehand see kind of behind the scenes and how they did some of the stuff really made me realize what a, a an achievement that it was. And that's a, a fantastic movie. Yeah. And it's not your kids, Disney Pinocchio. I mean, no. it's Del Toro. There are monstrous creatures in it. And I, I think it would be entertaining for all our listeners. Yeah. And I was reminded of our trip to the Ray Harryhausen exhibit in Oklahoma City, because we had, I think, both kind of hoped at the end when they spit you out in the gift shop that maybe there'd be a, a really cool book or something unique to the exhibit. Nothing here either. Uh, there was a, a big, beautiful book about Del Toro. However, I don't know that it's not a book you can just buy anywhere. So I had to search for your souvenir elsewhere. And I think I found a pretty cool one later to send you. Went to another museum and I got to spend the day with our good friend and member of the Facebook group page and contributor to the episode, Jonathan Angarola. He was so kind to take the day off and 
took us to lunch, and then we spent the afternoon at the Museum of the Moving Image uh-huh. in Queens. I'll rattle off some of the things I saw there that were, you know, related again and, and of interest to monster kids. I believe they have a an exhibit of Jim Henson and the Muffets that's permanent. However, they did have uh, at this time, and in addition to that, it was an exhibit uh, on the Dark Crystal. There were a lot of interesting props and memorabilia from the Dark Crystal there, if anyone's a fan of that. Speaking of the uh, sets or models, this was not an actual set, but they had a miniature replica of some of the sets from Silence of the Lambs that was really cool to see. This was not the original, and I don't know what about the replication of it makes it special, but a Bride of Frankenstein wig. Uh, That was interesting because, of course, it's in color and it sort of had a reddish tint where we would be used to the darker color, uh, and then the white stripe, of course. Uh, They had a couple life masks of people that were very interesting. Jack Palance from The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, late 60s Dan Curtis production that was on TV. A life mask of Darby Jones from Zombies on Broadway. And then I am so sad. I was looking through my pictures and I can see it. First of all, there's a number of pictures that are of my feet or of the floor or people walking by. And adjacent to that was a picture that in the distance was something I intended to get a close-up picture and did not, but it was the mask used by Dustin Hoffman in Little Big Man. But as fans will know, that was the same basic makeup that was used for Barnabas Collins in House of Dark Shadows, the old man, old age makeup. I did not get a good close-up of that. It's just sort of in the distance. So I'm I'm kind of sorry about that. And then for more modern horror fans, we did have Freddy's glove from Nightmare on Elm Street. We had his chest of souls from Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. And then perhaps my favorite was a life-size, don't know what to call it, but Regan from The Exorcist, supposedly the body cast maybe, that they used of her on the bed with the head spinning scene. Those were all interesting things to see. And that's definitely something I would recommend for anyone that goes to New York City. And I also recommend you meeting up with Jonathan because he's a great guy. I got to meet Yasmin, his wife, who was a wonderful, delightful woman. I did not quite get to meet Stella. She was still in school and we had to head back for a show that night and I did not get to meet her. That I have to look forward to in the future, but I saw her bedroom and uh, (laughs) I sent her a little note after my trip and told her that I liked her bedroom. And Jonathan said that she said he saw my bedroom. (laughs) She has lots of cool things, stuffed uh, Gamera and Kaiju, and he's raising her right. We do have some feedback this month. Also, I told you we had a ton of old business. If anyone remembers last time I had mentioned that we had a comment we were kind of joking about on the length of our podcast. And Chris Hicks from Maryland sent us a quick note, which I really enjoyed. He said he enjoys the longer podcast. It gives listeners and the creators time to really dig into the material like many documentaries. You add audio tracks from the movies and trailers, take trips to the snack bar. It's awesome. I just skip over podcast episodes under 45 minutes. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Chris. That's very validating. And we appreciate that you appreciate long podcasts because we've done a few of them. 
Well, now we have a goal, right? We have to look and see what the <laughs> longest episode we did and see if we can surpass that. You know, can oh, we God. reach that coveted four-hour mark? <laughs> yes. Well, we we didn't even say we're on episode 78. And I after 78 episodes, I don't know that I've got the stamina for those any longer. But maybe if we record over, you know, more than one session or I think I think the only way we could pull that off is is if we it was a particular fun topic and if we had guests. Yes. If we had guests. Then, you know, clearly I, we could easily go four hours with some of the people that we know and the right movie topic. And we had this is perhaps new. I don't know that we've had very much feedback on our YouTube channel. We do have a YouTube channel where we have a video companion to each and every episode when copyright laws don't restrict them from being shown. This is from Michael Dodd. And he said, great podcast episode, guys. Countess Dracula is a better movie, but Lady Frankenstein is more fun. Rosalba Neri played a Lady Dracula-type character in The Devil's Wedding Night from 1973, where she attempts to summon Dracula's spirit into the body of one of the twin brothers played by Mark Damon in a black magic ritual involving virgin sacrifice and the ring of the... I've never known how to pronounce this. Nibelungen? You know? Uh, okay. No, I don't. Yes. I don't know what you're referring Apologies for that. I saw The Devil's Wedding Night at a drive-in in the 70s and became a huge Rosalba Neri fan. See a lot more of the beautiful Rosalba in Slaughter Hotel from 1971, also known as Cold-Blooded Beast, also known as Asylum Erotica with Crazy Klaus Kinski. You guys (laughs) should do an episode featuring The Devil's Wedding Night and Slaughter Hotel. You know, a Rosalba Neri Fest. Thanks for a fun movie podcast, gentlemen. Well, yeah, we'd have to refer to it as Asylum Erotica if you're going to do that. Oh, yes. But that also says the words erotica and Klaus Kinski should never be in the same sentence. <laughs> I think you responded to this that you had not seen The Devil's Wedding Night or weren't familiar with it. I have seen it. I've got it on Blu-ray and it's a decent film. So I'm all on board for, for something like this. And that'd be fun. Yeah, yeah. I'd, be, I'd be on board with it. And then finally, one more message. This is from Anthony Walker. First of all, he addresses with you the Santo movies and... By the way, I'm sure you're going to say later, I know you're thrilled you finally got your box set or whatever that was coming. I am, yes. But he said, Rich might be happy to know that I watched my first Santo movie. You might be less happy when I admit it was because it was on one of the new episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was Santo in the Treasure of Dracula. I dug the groovy aesthetics of the movie, but I'm not sure I'm ready yet to fall down that rabbit hole. My advice to anyone wanting to go down the Santo rabbit hole is to go with some of the earlier black and white films that, for the most part, treat Santo much more, much differently. But you get to the 70s and it's a bit cheesier and stuff. That said, even some of the black and white ones, there's a couple, I think they have the Strangler and Return of the Strangler or something like that. Those are not the ones you want to start with. There's a lot of musical numbers in that that. It leaves you wondering what the heck is going on. He continues, I have a message for Jeff as well. Currently listening to the Countess Dracula and Lady Frankenstein episode, and you mentioned not wanting your co-workers to think you're weird. I say you need to let that freak flag fly. <laughs> and that is an excellent reminder. I responded that, yeah, I said that sort of trying to be funny, but there's a kernel of truth to that. I mean, you get a new job and you're meeting new people. I don't know how much you really want them to know that you're into horror movies. You know, they, they have an impression of it. They don't really understand. But 
I have mentioned before, I have met a couple of people that are, that are very supportive. They're listening to the podcast. Now, one of the women I work with loves horror movies. And every morning we kind of compare what we watched over the weekend. So I'm becoming much more comfortable with it. And certainly it's in an environment these days where we have more freedom to be the geeks that we are versus probably when most of us were growing up and were made fun of or did have a reason maybe to keep our little geek interests private and to ourselves. Raise that flag, sir, and, and go ahead and do it with honor and pride because we live in a in an age where there should be no no shame in what we love. Well, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks, but working on it. Life is a continual process. So, it is, you know, no matter how old you are. I once again appreciate these fantastic messages that were left. Some were left on our YouTube channel. Some were on our Facebook group page. We also have voicemail. If anyone wants to call and leave a message or record a message and email it to us, we'll gladly play it on here. Our voicemail number is 616-649-2582. That is 616-649-CLUB. Ah, <laughs> I, I've got to refrain. I would go into some stereotypical chat. I know. We discussed I, earlier trying not to do during this episode. I, I'm going to just apologize up front. At some point or another, I am probably going to pronounce a name with a hint of a fake Italian accent. It is not intended in any way, shape or form to offend anyone. It is simply because I am a goofball. <laughs> And then just finally, our email address is classichorrors.club at gmail.com. So whew, that was a lot of stuff. Anything else before we take a break and start with our first movie? Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes. my gosh. <laughs> uh, mom and Jay Richard almost let me forget. But uh, shout out to my mom and brother. I do have some disturbing news. They have not listened to our last episode yet. And I told them, well, then we are going to stop greeting them. And they said, no, 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 they, 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 they will get to it. And they have threatened, or should I say promised, that they are going to send in some feedback. So oh, I, that would be awesome. We are waiting patiently for that. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. <laughs> and I'll, I added on as I did last month. Hello, yep. Carla. Who, yes, hello, yeah. Carla. Yes. Uh, oh, Carla, who... I am a little disturbed to learn, can hear probably most of what's going on during our conversation. And I do not hear her, but I see you acknowledge her shouting responses that she gives to she the is, things that you say. So. Yeah, she's actually uh, downstairs. I'm upstairs here. And uh, yeah, she she can't hear, um, even though we've got the door closed. So, Well, she, so since you're listening, Carla, hello. Hope you're uh, well. She might not be able to hear that well. Young Frankenstein is one of her most favorite films. She quotes the film throughout the entire viewing. She, she knows so many of the lines. She knows that movie inside and out. Hopefully we'll do it justice. And all libertà? E cos'è se uno ha una para? Buonasera, 
course, it was a very important point to Lee. Yes. Not as, not as we begin to get him. Not. I am not, not going Dracula. to play Dracula. The horror film as a broad genre, and the Dracula character in particular, is of course ripe for parody. When Baron Osvaldo sells the family castle in the Carpathian Mountains to settle a tax debt, and it's converted into a hotel, he continues to live there, working as his bellboy. When his uncle arrives in a wooden crate, Osvaldo concocts a plan for him to buy back the hotel and save the job of his girlfriend, Lily. First, though, he must save her from his uncle, whom he learns is a vampire. Uncle was a vampire. Richard, I normally will rattle through some of the credits here, but we have an agreement from the beginning that you are going to attempt all of the names, so I will save that for later. I do want to say that this movie runs 85 minutes. Its country of origin is Italy. It was released there in October on the 28th of 1959. We in the U.S. did not get to see it until 1964 when it was distributed on television by Embassy Television. And then, of course, as you mentioned, it now has a beautiful Blu-ray release from Severin Films. Well, I, I'm going to hate to correct you, but actually the film is longer than that. The version that Severin has put out is 101 minutes. Thank you. I must have been referring to the yard because there's been different versions, correct? Well, there was a, a version that and if you find if you look on YouTube, it's obviously like a, a VHS dub. And I think that that is a, a shorter version. Yes, this this doesn't say that it's fully restored. I've actually have your, still have your case. Uh, but yeah, actually, it does say the uncut Italian theatrical version. What did you think about it in a nutshell before we dig in deeper? You know, comedy is subjective. Um, and this is something where horror comedy is not a sweet spot for you. And I totally get it because comedy is an acquired taste and, and you really have to sometimes put yourself in the mindset and, and and some people can like certain certain comedy and not others if you're looking for a more high-end more intelligent comedic experience this is not going to be the movie for you because it's definitely it, it definitely not really slapstick but it definitely goes down a, a particular i've seen some other euro comedy films and it, it definitely kind of falls into the almost farcical realm you have all of the comedy around Osvaldo and the vampire played by Christopher Lee. Some of it has to do with height differences because Osvaldo is short and Christopher Lee is not. It's an acquired taste. And when I initially started watching it, I actually had to watch this twice. The first night I fell asleep during it, but it was my fault for starting it late. I was actually intrigued. I was like, I really need to be more awake when I watch this. And so I did watch it. In fact, there were several scenes that I rewatched to kind of go back and try to absorb. I liked this. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It's not a film that I will probably go back and revisit, but it's not a film that I wouldn't revisit. I appreciated the comedy in it. I did feel 101 minutes was a little long. 85 minutes probably would have been a better running time. I'm a stickler for running times, and I think sometimes films run too long. What about you? Oddly, I borderline loved it. Working through some of my things here, so when I say horror comedies are not my thing, I don't really know exactly what this means, but maybe as a way of explaining that is 
I don't really consider this a horror comedy. I think it's a comedy comedy. I think to me, a horror comedy tries to straddle that line of truly scaring you and truly making you laugh. And sometimes that's what doesn't work for me. I don't think there's anything in this that's intentionally scary. Therefore, I sort of don't have that baggage of, oh, well, I'm not going to like this because I don't like that type of movie. The second thing is uh, you mentioned slapstick and the Pink Panther movies. As a kid, I loved them. I have in my mind that those are great. I own them. I haven't watched them as an adult. I'm really scared on what I'm going to think because that is pure slapstick. And slapstick is something in any genre I generally don't care for. Not that my tastes are highbrow because believe me, my humor can go in the gutter. But this movie, I don't believe, is really slapstick either. There's not pratfalls. There's not people falling down. There's not pies in faces. So we've got two things going for it now, even though it is, quote unquote, a horror comedy. I thought very much of it was very funny. I think there was some more cerebral humor as some physical humor. I don't know. It was cute. It was, you you mentioned that there's the the physical visual humor of tall and short. That's funny, you know, to see them together and interacting. That's funny. It does in a way, not as much as young Frankenstein, but does sort of spoof horror movies. I mean, there's a scene where he's climbing out of his coffin and he has trouble and that's funny. You know, how many horror movies does someone rise out of a coffin and hey you know that would really be hard to do yeah Uh, i thought that was funny it also has some overall themes that are pretty consistent through it like there's the theme of mistaken identity which is to me always kind of funny in a couple situations you know people aren't who you think they are or the characters think they're someone that they're not i thought that was really done well here it's got a real story and builds there's consequences and it, it escalates and sort of becomes more, you use the word, I can't remember, but as it goes on, it becomes more farcical. Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of like that word. I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was very charming and very funny. And believe me, this caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. You know, you've got a, a great cast. You've got some good looking people in this film, and then you've got some typical, I don't want to say unattractive people, but I mean, the father, for example, um, who was uh, Carlos' father, right? So he he's kind of the stereotypical Italian, you know, you know, ah, you're not good for my daughter, which I mean, I think is, is a lot of fathers, not just necessarily Italian. Well, you know, you, we see that theme in a lot of uh, American movies as well. How it's played out here is, is, you know, he's a little bit more overbearing, really it all comes down to money, right? And it's just like, you, you don't have the money. You're, you're a musician. And then when he finally does meet Victor, which in a scene was actually really funny because the mother, of course, is now totally on board with Victor and, and Carla because she herself has now been bitten by Baron Roderico, who's Christopher Lee. Of course, now she's all hot and horny in love with the Baron uh, Roderico. And she's like, oh, they should be together. Lovers should be together. And he's in there. I'm, he's confused because he's like, I don't understand. You know, I thought we were united. You know, it was, I, I kind of, there's a lot of fun scenes like that. And I just course, want to interject. That's a good example because 
one of the jokes this movie revolves around, and again, being consistent and sticking with it, is that no, getting by a vamp- bitten by a vampire is not scary. You don't want to shy away from it. It's actually quite appealing to these women. Oh. And therefore, they are the ones chasing after the vampires. So that is a clever idea that they twist and milk it for all it's worth. And I think very successfully. There's a funny scene with Osvaldo after he becomes a vampire and he's going in to what he thinks is Carla's room and it ends up being the mother and he bites the the neck of the mother and the mother, she's all on board at that point, right? I guess, it, yeah, I guess it's Osvaldo that she is, because I said Baron Rodrigo, but it wasn't the Baron Rodrigo, it was Osvaldo, that's correct. What throws me a little bit is the character of Osvaldo is played by actor Renato Raskel and he's an odd character. And sometimes I, there are certain scenes where I'm like, I'm totally on board with it. And other scenes, it kind of pulled me out of the moment a little bit. Maybe it's his acting chops weren't up to par necessarily for, or maybe I was looking for something else. But it was inconsistent because then like in the next scene, it seemed like it'd be fine. So I don't know if maybe it was just his overall portrayal of it. Uh, I didn't dislike him. It was a roller coaster ride on the film a little bit. There were some, some scenes that worked and then some scenes that that didn't. And that got me thinking, I was like, well, maybe the scenes that didn't work, maybe if they cut those scenes out and then cut it back down to an 85 minute running time, that it might've moved along a little more briskly. I know you'll do cast and crew later and everything, but do you want to talk about him now? Because I do think there's something to that and his talking about his other things and his popularity I think, in Italy I think you've or got a lot of yeah I think you've done some research on on Ron. I don't have much on him so. oh no I I haven't really but I, I what I'm getting at is I wonder if this is typical of the type of roles he took or if it's different and maybe that's why it's inconsistent 53 credits with all of these these actors and the crew you know there's a lot of Italian films and so what I was trying to look for are films that maybe have had been dubbed and crossed over into the US obviously a lot of, of films that I have, have no knowledge of and all of the credits that I that I, I was looking for I didn't see anything else of his that immediately spoke out to me I was like oh well, this is a film that crossed over but he did do a lot of comedies around this time period honestly the the one film that did kind of jump out at me. And it was like, I kind of had to like chuckle a little bit. I was like, okay, obviously comes later in his career. He plays the blind man in Jesus of Nazareth uh, in 77, the miniseries, which uh, had a lot of Italian connections and European connections. But he also was an accomplished writer. Um, he was involved in the, in the, uh, the writing of this film. He was one of the story by credits. And I don't think he's listed as the screenplay, but he did provide content for, for the film. But he was also a songwriter. There was a documentary on the Blu-ray that features a European film scholar, Dr. Pasquale. And I'm not even going to attempt the last name. We'll just call him Dr. Pasquale. And it's like 10 minutes long, maybe. And it was um, not bad. I mean, it, didn't, it gave a lot of high-level stuff. But it did offer up that he was a songwriter who wrote A River Dare to Roma, which Dean Martin covered. And it's a song that's been covered by a lot of different musicians. But it, Dean Martin covered it, and it's on the Italian Love Songs album that Dean did. And I'm a huge Rat Pack fan. I love Dean Martin. 
And I love the heck out of Italian love songs. I've had that CD for decades, and Rivendurci Roma is actually one of my favorites. The next time I, I hear the song, I'll be thinking of Uncle Who's a Vampire. He also is credited for the music in, in this film. There's actually Renato Riscal and then Armando Travajoli. There is a song in the garden that the character of Lily or Liliana is singing. It's a really pretty song about flowers. And of course, I don't think that she sang it. The, act, the character of uh, Lily was played by Anche Gerk, who's actually a German actress. And she doesn't appear to be a singer. And so I'm thinking it was a song sung by perhaps another actress or singer that was dubbed in for the movie, because it does sound like it was maybe a, a professional song. But not knowing the song, and of course, when you do a search for the lyrics, it doesn't really come back with anything because I'm doing the English translation, which might not equal the original Italian version. I did Shazam. Shazam didn't know what the heck mm. the song was. But it's a really pretty song. And I wonder if it was included because maybe that was a song he had done because he's credited for the music in the movie. Yeah, I didn't really have much more than that. He was a big star in Italy and comedian, musician, like you said, he competed in the 1960 Eurovision Song Contest. What I was trying to determine was like, what would we compare him to here in the United States? Like, was he the Jerry Lewis of Italy or something like that? Was the fact that he was in this a draw to the box office for Italians? And those are questions I couldn't answer, but I kind of had a suspicion. Of comedians, though, the one he really reminded me most of would be Lou Costello. And I kind of thought of that as Christopher Lee then sort of being Abbott. I mean, nothing concrete about that. That's just the closest I could come to trying to compare him to somebody we're, that we're familiar with in the States. I got that feeling that he would maybe not necessarily carry a film, but be part of an ensemble cast, maybe, and have people that he worked with. The only reason this crossed over was because of Christopher Lee. Honestly, this film, if it didn't have Christopher Lee, would have been forgotten. It'd be a, a film that was released in Italy, and we probably never would have heard of it. His portrayal, his character of Osvaldo, and, and it was kind of patterned a little bit, and even from the marketing perspective, off of a, another actor who went by the name of Toto. Uh, and so this seems like a good way to, to segue into something I told you about Toto, an actor who started a lot of a lot of comedy films, but also now, a lot of before other you films. go too much further, is he human or canine? <laughs> He's he is human. He is okay, human. that Toto. Gotcha. That Toto. We're not we're, yeah. Toto, I think, is a legit name, but it's not a dog's name or the name of an 80s rock band. Toto was hugely popular. As often the case is, you've got somebody who's hugely popular, there's going to be all sorts of carbon copy wannabes. I have to say this guy's name. So Toto's was a stage name. <laughs> it's not his birth name. You'll know why he chose a four-letter word as his mm -hmm. stage name, because this was his birth name. Antonio, Griffo, Focas, Flavio, Angelo, Ducos, Comneno, Porfiro, Genito, Gagliardi, De Curtis, Di Basanzio. Holy moly. Toto, for short. <laughs> he would sometimes go by the name Antonio D. Curtis. I think going for the Tony Curtis 
name recognition mm-hmm. there. I suppose the next question, now that we've kind of identified the locals, is what in the world was Christopher Lee doing in this movie? And I did not watch the documentary because I had did not have the disc in my possession. However, I did keep the booklet that came with the set, and it didn't have a whole lot. And by the way, the books in both those sets are really, really good. Jonathan Rigby wrote this one. It just it helps you piece together Christopher Lee's history and how he went from one movie to the other while he was working in other countries. But he states in this booklet that Hammer's Dracula came out only the year before, but already Christopher Lee sort of had that attitude about Dracula being a sort of sacrosanct character that you didn't make fun of. And we know that later on he wanted to stop playing him because he thought he wasn't being taken seriously. And to get him to make this movie, they had to just make him a generic vampire and say, no, 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 it's not Dracula. We know it's Dracula. But for intensive purposes of getting him in this film, it was just a vampire. He wasn't necessarily a household name yet, but Horror of Dracula had done so well that they used his name for name recognition. It was his first Italian film, but because of the popularity, they just rode that wave. He's very much playing it as Dracula, although he talks a lot more than Dracula does in some of the Hammer films. But he never really plays it comedically at any point. And in fact, there's moments where Osvaldo, when they meet, you know, Osvaldo is kind of obviously doing his comedic shtick. And, and, you know, Christopher Lee's like, you know, he almost says, I don't have time for this. I need to know where the crypt is. Tell me where the crypt is. There is one scene where he kind of slyly is funny. He says something about proving a point and he touches his finger to one of his fangs. This is another good place to say how they've kind of twisted the legend of the vampire Well, number one, this is a vampire that actually doesn't want to live. He wants to go back to sleep permanently. You know, he wants death. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing is that he's able to do that simply by passing his vampirism to somebody else. So those are kind of some twists in the lore of vampires and of Dracula. You mentioned the cock crowing, and this proves you that I'm no highbrow snob as far as comedy goes, because one of the funniest things, and maybe it was in the delivery part of the lore here, and they repeat it over and over, is that the vampire will go to sleep when the cock crows. And I believe it's Osvaldo that the first time that he brings that up, he says, any specific kind of cock? Yes. <laughs> I That just tickled me, and I know it did. It did in the gutter, too. but... Uh, uh, you know. I was right there with you. That made me laugh. We'll talk about this much, much more in Young Frankenstein, but another thing that I think makes this work for me and makes potentially a horror comedy work is when the comedy comes from the characters and the situations, not the monsters themselves. And I think of a movie that everyone loves, and I recently gave it another try, Return of the Living Dead, still don't like it. And I think the reason is that What's supposed to be funny in that movie is zombies with googly eyes. To me, in and of itself, is just not funny. But in a movie like this and Young Frankenstein's where you've got tangible characters and they are in situations, to me, that's where the humor comes from. And I do think this movie does that. Again, not on as big a scale as Young Frankenstein, but certainly on the right track and doesn't go for that like lowest common denominator and you mentioned also, you know, Christopher Lee is not really made fun of and doesn't appear silly and goofy. And what else about Uncle was a vampire? 
Well, let's go through some of the cast and, and the the writers and stuff because there's certainly a lot of interesting creds here that I found as I was going through this. We'll mention Liliana first. I already mentioned, uh, played by Anche Gerk, German actress, not in a lot of films. As pretty as she was, you would have thought she would have been in a lot more films at that time period because that was it, right? Pretty, pretty girls got in the films. She only did 11 films and none that really stood out besides this one. So this is probably for modern audiences, that's kind of her claim to fame. Now, the character of Carla, who is the daughter who's in love with the singer, that was played by a prominent uh, actress at the time, Sylvia Cosina, 123 credits. She had done a couple of Hercules films. Uh, she did Hercules in 58, Hercules Unchained in 59. She'd go on to do uh, Love the Italian Way in 1960, which is a film that I've heard about over the years. She was also in Deadlier Than the Male in 67, which was the first of two Bulldog Drummond films. Bulldog Drummond's a character, this comes from books and is a radio drama in the States at one point. This version of Bulldog Drummond was definitely inspired by James Bond 007. So Deadlier Than the Male is, is one of many Euro spy films from this time period. And she was in the first film. There was a second film called Some Girls Do. You're going to find a lot of the usual spy elements and girls in bikinis, and they're a lot of fun. She was also in Lisa and the Devil in 73. And a film that I am not familiar with, it's, it sounds like a comedy based on what I read, Dracula in the Provinces in 75, hmm. which kind of sounds interesting. The character of Victor, the boyfriend, was actually uncredited, but went to actor Rick Van Nutter. I didn't necessarily recognize him right off the bat in the film, but I recognized the name. That's because he played Felix Leiter, one of many actors who played that character, the CIA agent in Thunderball, the James Bond film from 65. This was his debut film. Uh, he was only in 15 films, interestingly enough, and uh, one of those being Assignment Outer Space in 1960. And that's the only cast that I did. I, I tried to go through some of the other cast members, and it was just a lot of Italian credits. Nothing really stood out to me. If I miss anything, I apologize, but nothing really stood out on, on the other supporting cast, and there was quite a few other characters. There was a million and one people who, who either contributed to the story or screenplay from this film. And I found this interesting. Usually when we see a lot of names, a lot of these people will, this may be the only film they ever did, or they may only have like two or three credits. Most of these people had a substantial amount of other credits. So you had story, under the story by credits, you had Eduardo or Eduardo Anton. He had 70 credits, did quite a few films in the Toto series. There was a 1968 Italian TV miniseries of Sherlock Holmes with a actor by the name of Nando Gazzolo as Sherlock Holmes. I've never heard of this. And now I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes fan. So now I'm intrigued. Mario Secchi Gori, another one of the writers, 172 producer credits. Not a lot in the writing, but huge producer, obviously, in, in Italy. Marcello Fondato, 53 credits, including Blood and Black Lace from 64 and Black Sabbath from 63, uh, as well as uh, Renato Rascal and Steno. Steno is the director. We'll talk about him in a moment. 
The screenplay was credited to Eduardo or Eduardo Anton. Sandro Continenza, 159 credits for Sandro, including the 077 trilogy of films put out a few years ago uh, and made some prominence here in the States. The films Mission Bloody Mary, Special Mission Lady Chaplin, and From the Orient with Fury, which is a title I love. Mm. These were 007 inspired, obviously, with the 007 moniker. He wrote the Tiffany Memorandum in 67, which is another well-known film. Then there is Dino Verde, probably the lesser out of all these other writers, but he did do a movie that I've heard about, Death Walks on High Heels in 71. And then again, Steno is credited. Now, Steno is also the director. 125 writing credits, 76 director credits. He did several films in the Toto series. He did a couple of interesting films in the latter part of his career that the titles just immediately stood out. Banana Joe and The Sins of Casanova. One particular film he did, I have to find this film now, Curiosity's Killing Me. It's called Dr. Jekyll Likes Them Hot. (laughs) Thinking it might be a comedy. And the IMDb description sold me on this film. A lusty young woman decides to use her sexual powers to tame the evil and murderous Dr. Jekyll. I see farce written all over this. <laughs> I'm fairly certain we're probably going to have copious amounts of nudity. I'd be disappointed if we don't. So many writers on a movie, I mean, usually that doesn't bode well, right? Yeah. There's been a lot of rewrites. Something didn't work out well the first go round, so they had to bring in somebody else. Yet, Usually when you have a film that has so many writers, the end result is a disaster, right? It's a, yep. it's, it's a haphazard mess. That's not the case with this film. Well, I don't really have anything else to say about this. I enjoyed it. And I do think also at the heart, we've talked about it a lot of the comedy, but it's got a character that we care for. It's a sweet story, has a happy ending. I just was way, way surprised and happy when I watched this. Well, before we transition and take a break and start talking about our movie, we're going to jump into the time machine and move forward a few years. You want to go ahead and set the stage for 1974 and kind of tell us what else was going on so that when we get to Young Frankenstein, we'll have some context. Yes, indeed. Pop songs. We're going to go to the week of December 21st, 1974, roughly about the time that Young Frankenstein was released. We're going to talk about that in a second as as what we think might have been going on with the release date. But nonetheless, December 21st, 1974. I'll start off by saying there's a couple of songs not in the top 40 yet, but we're going to go on to become uh, big hits. The Power Play Billboard Song of the Week was a little ditty called Best of My Love by the Eagles. It was at number 48 on the charts. It would eventually be their second top 10 hit and their first number one. Debuting all the way down at number 87 was a song called Can't Get It Out of My Head by ELO. That would go on to become their first top 40 hit and their first top 10 hit, peaking at number nine. Okay, on to the top 10. Number 10, Do It Till You're Satisfied by BT Express. Number nine, I Can Help by Billy Swan. Number eight, a song that doesn't get played as much these days, Junior's Farm by Paul McCartney and Wings. Number seven, 
Shalala, Make Me Happy by Al Green. Now you'll know number six, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds by Elton John. And you should know number five, You're the First, the Last, My Everything by Mr. Barry White. Number four, might not know it by name. You'll recognize it when you play it. When Will I See You Again by The Three Degrees. Oh, I know that. And that is actually a favorite. I love that song. That's a good song. I have to admit that was a really pretty song. Number three, do you know this song? We have to do a sidetrack on this real quick. Angie Baby by Helen Reddy. Oh, yeah. Have you ever paid attention to the lyrics in that thing? I have something in the back of my head about that. All I have to say to the listeners is seek the song out. It's about a girl who's a little touched. And this is the lyrics. This is not me. This isn't the lyrics. She's a little touched. She was taken out of school. She listens to her music all the time. She's in a land of make-believe. And then the next line is, well, maybe kind of implying is she really in this land of make-believe or is there more to her character you get towards this sort of you know the end and this guy has been he's a peeping tom and he's been looking in and he's got evil intentions and he gets invited in but then as soon as he gets in the room the world starts to, to spin and the music is so loud and he ends up shrinking and gets sucked into the radio and then it goes on to say, well, the newspaper said that this boy was missing and presumed dead, but he's not because he lives in her dreams. <laughs> it's like he's her lover and she satisfies him every night. Basically ends in the same line. You know, living in a land of make-believe, well, maybe. Apparently the writer has basically said, well, I don't know why everybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm talking about. Helen Reddy seemed to think that it was a, had to do with like, he, he got overtaken by sound waves. Okay, maybe. It's a bizarre little tune, and it was number three this week. So let's seek it out. Number two, a lot more simple to know what they're talking about here. Kung Fu Fighting by Carl ah, yeah. Douglas. And number one, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. What was the box office of December 18th, 1974? Well, Young Frankenstein uh, was not the number one movie of the box office yet. The number one movie for a second week was Death Wish, starring Charles Bronson. Uh, It would be taken over the following week by The Godfather Part Two, which would eventually spend eight weeks at number one. That's when Young Frankenstein finally hit number one. Didn't happen until February 5th, 1975, in its seventh week of release. It would be bumped the following week by a film we've covered here on the show just recently, The Towering Inferno. The Towering Inferno would eventually spend five weeks at number one. What was on TV? Well, I chose Friday night, December 13th, 1974. On NBC... We had Sanford and Son. We had a Hallmark Hall of Fame presentation called The Borrowers. This is back in the day, folks, when Hallmark Hall of Fame was on television. You knew that it was a top-notch film presentation. It's not what they are now when they show Christmas movies 24-7 the entire month, entire year. Hallmark is not the same. Sorry for those of you who love those Christmas films. And I know there's some good stuff out there. 
Nonetheless, Hallmark Hall of Fame back in the 70s was a very different deal. And then I ended with Policewoman. CBS was in the mood in the season. They had How the Grinch Stole Christmas, followed by Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then a film called The House Without a Christmas Tree, starring Jason Robards. I'm not familiar with this movie. I kind of want to seek it out. I love Christmas films, and I watch a gazillion of them every year. And there's obviously a lot of films out there that have been kind of forgotten, and I think that's one of them. I don't know. Maybe there's a reason it's forgotten, but I'm going to have to seek it out for this next Mm. holiday season. ABC was where it was happening, though, folks. Started the evening off with Kung Fu, and then, this is why I did it, The Six Million Dollar Man. I'm a nerd, and I know it. That Six Million Dollar Man debuted in January of 74, and it uh, initially was on Friday nights. When they did the made-for-television movies in 73, it was Thursday nights. And then it was Friday nights, and then eventually they moved to Saturday nights, and then they finally settled on Sunday nights. And at the very end, they moved to Monday nights (laughs) before they got canceled. Friday nights, that's when I started watching Six Million Dollar Man. Well, I actually watched the telemovies, but I remember Friday night, Six Million Dollar Man night. Particular episode this week was an episode called Broken Fork, which I know because I'm a nerd. The night ended with Kolchak the Night Stalker in an episode called Energy Eater. Fairly certain it would have been ABC all night long for me back then. Well, I probably would have watched How the Grinch Stole Christmas and the first half of Rudolph, and then I would have gone to Six Million Dollar Man. Anyway, that's what was happening on TV back on December 13th, 1974. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Guys, you hear me? Give my creation life! Sky means business. Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Peter Boyle as the monster. Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh. (laughs) Boris Leachman as Frau Blucher. And Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth. What are you going to do to me? I'm not afraid of you. Kill the monster! See Mel Brooks' young Frankenstein. Yes, I think we could all use a good laugh. But don't see it alone. Don't miss Young Frankenstein, personally directed by Mel Blazing Saddles Brooks in black and white. No offense. When Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, er, Frankenstein, inherits the family estate and travels to Transylvania to see it, he becomes obsessed with proving his grandfather, Victor, was not a madman. When he's able to replicate the infamous experiment and bring dead tissue back to life, Frederick seems destined for greatness. First, though, he must rely on the help of his zany new friends to get his creature under control. Young Frankenstein, written by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks, directed by Mel Brooks, starring Gene Wilder, Peter Boyle, Marty Feldman, Madeline Kahn, Cloris Leachman, Terry Garr, and Kenneth Mars. Runs 106 minutes. We think it may have opened on December 15th in 1974, and it was released by 20th Century Fox. Young Frankenstein. Richard, what in the world can we say about this near-perfect movie? It is a classic. I have to immediately, though, say you forgot to mention 
someone who is, I believe, uncredited. But you of course, yes, I do apologize. Yes, Mr. Gene Hackman. Mel Brooks was in his prime. Uh, this was a, a hot year for Mel Brooks because this was coming on the heels of Blazing Saddles, which I think personally are his two best films. He'll add the producers into that. I believe he feels that Young Frankenstein was the best film he directed, but it's actually the third funniest film behind Blazing Saddles and the producers. I've loved this movie since the first time I saw it, which is probably on television. Uh, and then I have revisited it quite often over the years. In fact, had just watched this a few months ago in October uh, as part of our annual Halloween movies. What was your first experience with Young Frankenstein? I remember seeing it in the theater and loving I mean, I've loved it since then. There was probably a period of time where it kind of fell out of my mind, but revisiting as an adult, just absolutely one that I can pick up and watch anytime and love it. You mentioned off mic that it's something that Carla quotes. Oh yeah. Frequently. I unconsciously quote lines from this movie is just fantastic. I want to say a little something just about Mel Brooks. And this is very interesting because we are recording this a week that history of the world part two is debuting on Hulu. And of course, in 1981, he did History of the Story Part One. And I don't know if, I, I know at the end it teased a part two. I don't know if seriously ever there was intended to be one, but they are finally making this. I think there's eight 30 minute episodes. I've watched all but the last two, and it's very funny. It, of course, it's more up to date. I have some issues of with history of the world. Anyway, I just want to say that my history of Mel Brooks sort of moves forward from Frankenstein. I had not seen Blazing Saddles or The Producers, but I remember after seeing this, wanting to see every Mel Brooks movie, silent movie, High Anxiety, the spoof of Hitchcock movies is probably my second favorite. Again, some issues with history of the world. It's very uneven. And Mel Brooks is very uneven. I mean, he goes for it no matter what. And more times than not in his movies, to me, the jokes fall flat. Not in Young Frankenstein. Every single one of them hits. But then I sort of thought he was declining. As much as I should have loved Spaceballs, I just didn't. And then Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula Dead and Loving It. Decreasing returns as far as I'm concerned. Although I liked High Anxiety, I definitely think he peaked with Young Frankenstein. You know, I have never seen Silent Movie. Really? Which is a major that. oversight on my part that I really should collect, considering that I love silent movies, right? For whatever reason, in that movie, I, I just, and it never really was on television where I would sit down and watch it, and I just never actively sought it out. I actually really liked Spaceballs. Yeah. That's a movie that I, I've grown to really appreciate. I actually loved it when it came out. I had it on VHS and there's a lot of fun references in that. Is it on the same level as Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein? Absolutely not. It's not. There's, a, I think, a reason, though, that we don't see Mel Brooks in this because that was, you know, behind the scenes, Gene Wilder, you know, wanted to work with Mel Brooks. He wanted to do Young Frankenstein, but specifically said, I don't want you in it. Because when you're in it, you break the fourth wall and you turn it into something that I don't want young Frankenstein to turn into. Gene Wilder had a, had a vision. And what we got was his vision and Mel Brooks's vision. Mel Brooks agreed, look, I won't be in it. He 
is in it in some weird ways, but he does like the voice of, of the wolf or the dog in the background. And his hand is actually at, at the scene where he's like pouring the, the soup into the bowl. I guess they had to reshoot it and Gene Hackman wasn't there. So that's his hand, but you don't see him on camera and, and he doesn't have like a, a regular speaking part. That may very well be why this is in my mind, kind of the best of the best. Nothing against Mel Brooks. I do want to mention one other movie from 1970, The 12 Chairs. Have you ever seen that? A long time ago. I actually do remember that. And I remember seeing it in the theater at the Video Twin in Enid, Oklahoma. I thought it was hilarious at the time. Dom DeLuise is in it and some of the normal cast. I don't know if it's been hard to find or why I haven't rewatched it. But we're here to talk about Young Frankenstein. Yes, what movie are we talking about? (laughs) And I want to say that I, this is one of those rare episodes where I've done some research and read a book. (laughs) This is Young Frankenstein, the story of the making of the film by Mel Brooks with Rebecca Keegan. It was published in 2016. So I will be referencing occasionally things from this. And I do want to start out with a continuation of my thoughts about horror comedies. And I pointed out some of this in our discussion of Uncle Was a Vampire, but here is something that Mel Brooks said, and he there are sections of this that he did write. He said, uh, something he learned while writing sketches for Sid Caesar on your show of shows in 1950s. Jokes alone don't work, but jokes that emerge out of characters in stories we love do work. So that goes with my observation of the comedy coming from characters and situations, not googly-eyed zombies. Your comedians talk about that. I was like, being a, being a comedian is, is incredibly hard. You can read Shakespeare. You can scream when the man with the axe is chasing you. But to be able to say a line and then say it in a way that is going to generate laughter, that's an incredible gift and like you said, it's it's so subjective. And I think probably to be a comedian, you're not going to please everyone. But to be successful, you've got to please a majority. Well, and you've got to have good source material. I mean, you've got to have, I mean, even the best comedians will have horrible films. I'm going to continue with another thought from the book because Perfect. it relates not only to what we're talking about, but something you said earlier about Mel Brooks. And in this, he says, of all my films, I love Young Frankenstein the most. He says, though, I had to walk a very careful line not to be foolishly funny, but to be genuinely funny. It was difficult, and I think I accomplished it about 80 or 90 percent of the time. Time tells you. At first, you say to yourself, oh, that was a little cheap there, just going for laugh. All these things run through your head. I didn't set it up well enough. It doesn't fit the story. It's not really in that character's psyche. But then time passes. And you can really tell how you feel about it. So Young Frankenstein is hilarious comedy. You don't have to be a classic horror fan to like it. But if you are, it is a whole nother level of loving parody and spoof. And if you've seen the Frankenstein films, especially the first three films. It is just gorgeous. It's in black and white. They use techniques that Universal Monster films used. It just is sublime. <laughs> there's so much to love. There, there's so much to love. You know, there's so many other horror comedies out there that sometimes fall flat. I mean, there's a reason why you don't hear a lot about Bela Lugosi's Mother Riley versus the Vampire meets the Vampire film. 
There's a reason why we haven't talked about Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. <laughs> you know, Frankenstein is so far removed from those types of films that it's it's in a class all of its own. He had some great comedic genius, a great combination with Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks. Gene Wilder himself is, is, a, is an established comedian. I was actually surprised when I started looking at his credits. For some reason, I thought he was in so much more than he actually was. He was only in, he only has 37 credits hmm. to his name. And, you know, obviously I, I knew about a lot of them, and we'll talk about it when we get to that point. He was an actor, I think, that he reached a point where he kind of pulled away from acting. And I've seen some later interviews with with Gene Wilder, and he got a little jaded. Some of it may be after the death of his wife. It seemed like the output of films did kind of decrease a little bit following that. He did not love modern film. You know, you see some of those later interviews, and there's one, I think, where Turner Classic Movies interviewed him. He definitely had an opinion and it was a, it was rather strong and a somewhat negative opinion on modern film. And I think that may very well be why he he took a step away from film. That would explain why he, his list of credits weren't as long as I thought they were. One thing I always forget when I watch this is how good his performance is. And it's yes. not just him being a comedian, it's him being an actor. I could focus on him the entire time. He is just so good. And he runs a range of emotions. I mean, he starts out in the classroom and... He's a calm, collect, intelligent man who quickly snaps. We, he's got a short, uh, I don't want to say short temper, but maybe his patience is, is short. And there's just true, I don't know, what do you call it? Pathos or something in his performance the entire time. It, he's just remarkable to watch. Well, his timing is is brilliant. I mean, his, his comedic timing now I have a feeling that there's probably a bit of, of uh, well, probably a lot of bit of editing involved because apparently he he was cracking up on set all the time and they were constantly having to redo scenes. And, and the, the DVD that I've got, it does have some outtakes and you do kind of get a feel that there's a certain scenes that you get to a certain point. And then in particular, the one scene where, the arrival of his fiance Elizabeth, and she's mm-hmm. getting out of the carriage, and you've got Marty Feldman and Terry Gar and Gene Wilder there. And that particular scene, apparently, they just had to reshoot over and over and over again because Marty Feldman would keep would bite the mink stole around Madeline Kahn's neck, and it kept getting it stuck in his mouth. And then, of course, everyone would start laughing. He, it sounds like he had a fantastic time on set. Which makes me wonder if, if anyone has seen one of the later interviews with Terry Garr, who has had a fairly big health issue in recent years. She has MS. It's ravaged her in a lot of ways. She has been wheelchair bound for quite a while. She's got a, a bit of a jadedness to her as well, but it's really hard to tell. She was doing an interview and somebody asked, like, what was the experience? And she did not have anything good to say about Gene Wilder. I've watched that several times. I'm thinking, is she being funny? Is she being sarcastic? Or did she really not have anything good to say? Have you ever seen any of her classic appearances on David Letterman? No. To this day, I don't know what happened because she just suddenly was never on anymore. I don't know if they had a falling out or what, but same type of thing. You're never really sure if she's serious or not. I always was under the impression it was an act. I got to acknowledge she's 
she is at her most beautiful at this point. She is stunningly beautiful in this. The kind of the girl next door in many ways. I mean, she's still young and she would do things in years later that we'll talk about. But this is almost peak Terry Gar. You said something that uh, evoked this passage in the book and talking about the editing of the film. Mel Brooks said the first test screening he had for Young Frankenstein was two hours and 22 minutes long. That's pretty damn long for me. I make 88-minute movies. I don't even make 90-minute movies. Anyway, I played it for a lot of people who worked on the lot, secretaries and such. The theater was packed, and we got only about half the laughs we were aiming for. It was a little dismal. It was too long, and a lot of it didn't work. So I made a speech. I said, ladies and gentlemen, you've just seen a two-hour and 22-minute failure. In less than three weeks, I want you back here to see a 95-minute smash hit movie. I want every one of you back. So he said, over the next three weeks, I chopped every scene down to get to the information and the punchlines. I must have taken two or three minutes out of the scene with the little girl at the well. It was just empty talk. I cut two minutes out of the village scene where the townspeople rail against the Frankensteins, worried that there's a monster in the making. The charades, I cut out some struggling. So Inga and Igor got what Dr. Frankenstein was trying to say faster. If you watch the extras on the DVD, there is the whole reading of the will which does not take place in the finished film. They're opening the will. There's the reader of the will. And I can't remember the actor's name. I think he played General Burkhalter in Hogan's Heroes. And then you have all these people that they're reading the will to, and it doesn't work. If that would have been kept at the start of the film, you immediately would have been starting out very flat. And the Mm. jokes didn't really click with me. And honestly, None of these characters would appear in the rest of the film for the most part. Hmm. It's interesting to see it, but it was a scene that fell flat. And then I just want to wrap up the editing thing because he talks about how Blazing Saddles had become a hit at the time he was editing. He said, we were hot, but in the editing room, we were cold. He was working with his editor, John Howard, and Gene Wilder would join us. It was much harder to edit Young Frankenstein than it had been to edit Blazing Saddles. On Blazing Saddles, I just had to find and isolate the emotions. Young Frankenstein was a much more technically eloquent film. Sometimes I'd be stuck between the most gorgeous black and white shot and a Marty Feldman moment of comedy. I usually chose the Marty Feldman moment of comedy. It was also difficult to choose how to transition from one scene to the other. I didn't just want to undo the art of the film by just settling for the comedy. So he ended going back to James Whale, as he often did on the movie. He went back to old-fashioned 1920s editing techniques, the iris outs, the spins, and the wipes. Not only did they lend the film a feeling of authenticity to Whale's era, they also helped me move seamlessly between comedy and art. With the editing of this, there were some things that he initially thought didn't work and was going to cut, but ended up keeping in, sometimes because the audience reaction. For example, the walk this way sequence. He initially thought that didn't work. Even Gene Wilder and and Marty Feldman thought, ah, no, this isn't going to work. But when he noticed that the audiences laughed at that sequence, and so he actually fought to keep it in. And now, of course, that's a hugely iconic scene. He did include that bit in the producers and Robin Hood Men in Tights. But You should know this, Richard. The popular visual gag has appeared in films, perhaps first 
in Is My Palm Red, 1933, a Fleischer cartoon short in which Betty Boop complies with the instruction of Bimbo playing the palm reader. But that's not what I was expecting you to know. I was expecting to you, you to know it was used in After the Thin Man. Yes. Yes, that is true. Aerosmith and their song, Walk This Way, is because of this scene. Really? They were recording the album and they went to go see Young Frankenstein and they thought, oh my God, this is so funny. We've got to do a song. Thus, Walk This Way was created. It has nothing to do with the movie, yet was inspired by this one crazy little scene in the movie that was almost cut at one point. Ended up being, I think, without a doubt, the biggest hit Aerosmith ever did. And the song that actually brought them back from the brink when they had all their success in the 70s by the early to mid 80s, the drugs and addiction and stuff, the band was falling apart. Marty Feldman, actually, one of the funniest gags in the in this movie was like the hump changing. Yeah. From, that was totally ad-libbed. Mm. He was doing it on set. And then all of a sudden, they someone calls like, oh, my God, he keeps changing the hump from one side. And they kept it in and actually then rewrote it into the script. There was a lot of, of ad-libbing done, obviously, uh, some of the funniest so Gene Hackman, he's so wonderful in this film as the blind man. They said it took like four days to film his really brief segment. And he's uncredited because I don't believe he got paid for it. I think he just totally did it for, for the experience. But his line were at the very end where he says, you know, I was going to make espresso. That was totally ad-libbed. And the reason that it fades so quickly after that was because the crew started laughing hysterically because they weren't expecting that. And so they tried reshooting the scene and Gene Hackman couldn't keep a straight face. You know, it was like that magic ad-lib moment couldn't be recreated. So they very quickly from that scene because they couldn't use the rest of the footage. And there was the no tongues line. We're getting ready to kiss like no tongues. Oh, can you imagine those people? I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. So many funny people together. How could they not crack up and ad lib? I want to talk about Marty Feldman for a moment. Marty Feldman, had obviously a very unique look and he a very funny actor and, and the way he delivered his lines. Only 27 film credits. He died at a very young age. He did Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, A Smarter Brother. He did. Uh, he was in silent movie. In 1982, he was doing the movie Yellowbeard, which was kind of this weird pseudo Monty Python-esque film because it's got Graham Chapman, Eric Idle, and John Cleese from Monty Python. And it's also got Peter Boyle, we should mention in this movie, and Marty Feldman's in it. Well, he died during the the end filming of uh, Yellowbeard. Such a weird death. He had shellfish food poisoning that resulted in a heart attack and he died at the age of 48 mm. uh, and the very last scene in the movie, his character dies. And that actually had, they had to use like a body double to, to film the scene. I was reading about like John Cleese and Eric Idle's comments. They both said a horrible movie, John Cleese, you know, and I could hear his voice saying, is this one of the, the six worst films ever made? Uh, and Eric Idle said it's the worst movie he's ever made. But they both said 
it's one of the most pleasurable experiences of, of making a movie because they said it was so fun. There was laughter on the set all the time. Hmm. I just think that there's some films, as we said, I think Young Frankenstein would have been a hilarious film to just be a fly in a wall. Not only for the comedy, but just for the sets and just for the experience. Mm. You casually mentioned that the original equipment for the Frankenstein uh, lab- laboratory was used in this film. Uh, Ken uh, Strickfaden, he had it in his garage. When Mel Brooks you know, kind of found him, he's like, yeah, it's, he still had it all. It's still sitting there. Ken Strickfaden had never been given proper credit. I guess that was all he wanted. It was like, you know, yeah, you could use my equipment. Just give me screen credit. That's a, a wonderful touch, right? It's like these little things, like you've got this great musical score from John Morris. You've got these wonderful sets that just make you think that you've walked right into a 1939 Universal film. The use of black and white, we've talked about before, There's the, the way to do lighting properly in a black and white film can make it look better than so many color films. Not to mention just the nonstop gags that are if you've seen the originals you know then you totally get if not then they'll go right over your head but you know what i noticed this time is that well number one it's not just the frankenstein movies there were scenes that to me i don't know if they weren't blatant but evoked dracula i think in the steps in the basement there were a rat crawling on the stairs that reminded me of dracula when they're riding by the carriage and looking at the countryside and there's that low fog all across the ground, that reminded me of the Wolfman. Yeah. When the monster carries Madeline Kahn at the end, that reminded me of the mummy. Not only all that, this has some what I would consider nods to Hammer films. Universal didn't usually have buxom Terry Gar. She was more out of Hammer than out of Universal. So it's just a whole love for the genre that's in this. We, we really should have had more Buxom Terry Gar in, in film. So I'm, I'm going to go on the record as saying that. I'm trying to think of like if there's a character that matches the Frau Blucher. Character. Well, I did read that she was sort of supposed to represent Maria the Gypsy from The Wolfman. It's loose, but that was the one connection I saw them make. I sort of take her also as mini. Una O'Connor. Una O'Connor, yes. Yes. To me, she sort of reminds me of Una O'Connor. In a more toned down version, yeah. I was going to ask, like, do you have a favorite character? And I don't think I really do, but Cloris Leachman stands out as Frau Blucher. It's for one simple line. And if I quote anything from Young Frankenstein and I do it regularly, and let me make sure I do this right. Ovaltine? (laughs) This is one of those movies that is so easy to just start quoting silly little things along the way. There's such love for the, the material. I don't know if you did read anything about Gene Wilder, like having a particular affection in this book. Mel Brooks talks about it. He has an affection for those old movies, but really the idea came from Gene Wilder. He didn't read anything specifically why, but he had to have had some type of love. and had to. He had to to have come up with this idea. And you know what else? I talked about these other references and Hammer even. There's even... And I only just now verified this, but as I was watching last night, again, he's reading his grandfather's diary 
And there is a line resolved to make him of enormous stature. And for some reason, I thought, that sounds like it might be from the original novel. It is. Oh, wow. This movie is just downright amazing. <laughs> uh, it really is. There, there's, there's so much to love in this film. And maybe that's a good segue where we can talk about the cast. Because yeah, I, this I mean, is a, we could go on and on. This is a perfect a perfect cast. The, the main core and just the, the rapport and chemistry that they have with each other. It just worked so well. We've talked a little bit about Gene Wilder already. Only 37 credits. Obviously, when you think of Gene Wilder, a lot of people immediately say Willy Wonka. He's the definitive Willy Wonka. I don't care how many times they want to try to remake Willy Wonka and get whoever the new current flash in the pan star is. Sometimes there's just some things that shouldn't bother to be remade. Later years, he did stuff. Well, the Frisco Kid was done around this a few years later because I know Harrison Ford was in it. That's a fun film. Of course, he did Silver Streak. Then films later on in the 80s were not quite on the same level. Peter Boyle, who plays the monster, 95 credits. He did a lot of of television work, but did Taxi Driver. Uh, I think a lot of people know him for playing the the father, Frank Barone, in Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, He was also in The X-Files. He was in Yellowbeard, as I mentioned. He's also in a film we may do on this show at some point, Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. Or we may not. <laughs> well, maybe that we could do a double feature, Yellowbeard and Beyond the Poseidon. <laughs> that, that'd be an interesting, interesting double feature. We talked about Marty Feldman. So good in this. Gosh, he's so funny. Madeline Kahn also. Mm. So many priceless lines. Her, she was really in her prime at this point. She had just played Lily Von Stoop in Blazing Saddles. She would eventually play Empress Nympho in History of the World Part 1. She was also an adventure of Sherlock Holmes' smarter brother. She, Paper Moon was done a couple of years earlier. Mm. She really put her on the map. She died in 99 at the age of 57 of ovarian cancer. I I don't know that I knew she had passed, honestly. I just thought she had, wasn't acting mm. anymore. I, I forgot she had passed so long ago now. Cloris Leachman as Frau Hulucher. 288 credits for Cloris Leachman, a character actress, if there ever was one, a lot of work and some genre work as well. Now, a lot of people might remember her from the character of Phyllis in the Mary Tyler Moore show, which actually gave her own spinoff for a period of time. More recently, she was in Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse in 2015. Back in the day, she was in episodes of Sixth Sense, Night Gallery, Thriller, Early Days of TV. She was on Tales of Tomorrow. I remember her as playing the mother, Agnes Fremont, in the Twilight Zone classic episode, It's a Good Life, with Billy Moomy. And she came back to play the character again in the sequel to that, It's Still a Good Life, in the 2003 version of Twilight Zone, which was also, that was the best episode of that version of Twilight Zone, hands down. We have Terry Garr as the lovely Inga, Star Trek Connection. We had, I, you know, I knew right away we'd have at least one, and it's the only one that I was able to find. She played Roberta Lincoln in the last episode of the second season of classic Star Trek, Assignment Earth, which was actually a intended to be a pilot for a possible series, which would have starred Robert Lansing as the character of Gary Seven. She would have been his sidekick, if you will. It stands now as kind of an odd Star Trek episode because you wonder why... Gary Seven is being in so many scenes and where's Kirk and Spock? They don't do much. 
while I was a pilot for a potential series. She was also, of course, in other films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mr. Mom, and Tootsie. Kenneth Mars plays the character of Inspector Kemp, who is obviously inspired by Lionel Atwill's character, Inspector Krogh, from Son of Frankenstein. 231 credits for him, lots of TV work. He was also in the 86 version of Twilight Zone. He was in The Producers, also Wonder Woman, something I saw in his credits. A lot of character actor work for him as well. And of course, as we mentioned, Gene Hackman in the uncredited role as the blind man, 102 credits. I remember him the most, of course, playing Lex Luthor in Superman the movie and Superman 2. And we have to mention it, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Mm -hmm. He was also in the Why Poseidon do we have Adventure. to mention that? <laughs> I know, I know. He was also in the Poseidon Adventure, which we've covered here in a previous episode, as well as an episode of The Invaders. He was in Marooned, uh, the great Western Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman. He retired in 2004 after that movie, Welcome to Mooseport. Not a great film to end your career on. It's probably a reason why he walked away from film. Not much more we can say about the writers and directors because it was written by Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks, directed by Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks writer, producer, director, actor. Do you know he only directed 11 films? So he didn't have like a long list of films. This was his fourth film. He's long since been retired from directing. May I return for a moment to Cloris Leachman? You may. For a, a shameless moment of cross promotion. I do want to mention that in the early, well, in the 70s, she was in several TV movies that I've been reporting on on Fridays in my journey through 70s TV movies. So I thought I just would call those off real quick. Haunts of the Very Rich, Dying Room Only, Death Sentence, Death Scream. And that takes her up to about the road at time. So she was a, a regular in, in some of those movies she was in, honestly, are some of the best that I've watched. I do want to just talk for a second about the release of the film in, in 20th Century Fox. The producer of the movie, Michael Gruskoff, talks in this book about the release. And 20th Century Fox thought December was a good time to release the film. We would be piggybacking off Mel's success with Blazing Saddles. In early December, and there's some discrepancy here, and I'll come back to this, on who this artist is. They say it's an artist, Anthony Goldschmidt, who had done the poster for the movie, he painted the largest billboard ever on the side of the Playboy building on Sunset Strip. It was 5,600 square feet, took 86,000 gallons of paint, and was lit up by 14-something lights. It was unmissable. Mel called Hugh Hefner, and we screened the film of the Playboy Mansion. Huff went crazy for it and wound up showing it to his friends the next night. Now here, I also know you want to talk about the discrepancy of the release date. When Fox told us we would open on December 15th and be up against the Towering Inferno, which opened on December 14th, and the Godfather Part 2, which opened on December 20th, it sent shivers up my spine. But our reviews were great and the audience came out in droves. So Richard, what comments did you have about the release date, December 15th? Why is that questionable? Well, so December 15th is a Sunday. And I think that for modern films, we all know that, you know, obviously Friday is the release day, right? Unless sometimes the film gets shown Thursday night. Sometimes, although I, I don't know, post-pandemic, have we really had too much of this, but might get a Wednesday release, you know, if it's like an upcoming holiday weekend or a big film, get that extra day or two so they could make that opening weekend box office. Basically, they can bloat the numbers a little bit. 
Opening a film on a Sunday seems really weird for me. Certainly by today's standards, they would never open a movie on a Sunday. And 1974, there were still places with blue laws. A Sunday release in 1974 seems weird. Maybe this was a, what they do, of course, getting a film released, you know, before the end of the year so we can get considered for 1974 nominations or anything like that. And that might explain why it took seven weeks for Young Frankenstein to hit number one at the box office, other than obviously it had some fairly stiff competition. I'm wondering if this was a limited release. Sometimes IMDb says that, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm wondering if maybe this was a limited release. And then after the first of the year, then it got a wider release, which then helped it get to that number one spot in its seventh week. And for all we know, I mean, the book references that it could have been a screening, the first public screening. Did not open in Enid, Oklahoma on December 15th, I can tell you. (laughs) The other thing I mentioned, a discrepancy with the artist of the poster, the book said Anthony Goldschmidt. So first, I want to tell you that beside that little snippet about the poster, this book has an entire chapter on the poster. And that got me to thinking I'm looking at it. I remember the poster in my mind and, you know, fine. But when you look at it, it is really, I think, a beautiful piece of art. And when I think about movie posters, I think about our friend Alistair Hughes, who does the Hammerama podcast with Steve Turek, part of the Diecast movie podcast. In their Hammerama episodes, they always do a segment on the art of the movie poster. So I reached out to Al and asked if he would mind recording a segment for us on the poster. He responded and he mentioned that the artist was John Alvin, and that contradicts maybe some several contradictions in this book. I did look up Anthony Goldschmidt, and supposedly he worked with John Alvin on a number of movie posters. I don't know if one maybe was the zi- designer and one executed the art or what, but in this segment that Al so graciously recorded for us, perhaps he will help us out and understand that. I'm going to interject that right now and Thank you very much, Alistair, for participating in this episode. Yes, thank you. Hello, Classic Horrors Club podcast. This is Alistair Hughes, illustrator, author, and co-host of the Hammerama podcast with Steve Turek. I'm delighted that you have invited me onto your wonderful show to talk about the Young Frankenstein film poster. The mood and style of Young Frankenstein, arguably Mel Brooks's most successful blend of homage and humour, is expressed perfectly in the instantly recognisable film poster painted by the incomparable John Alvin in 1974. I now urge you, listening at home, to bring this image up on your screen or flick to whatever page you require in a relevant movie poster art book. I'll wait. Now... Let's begin. The entire image is dark. A nighttime setting with an all-pervading bluish cast. At the very top, a centrally placed, starkly shadowed castle atop a craggy mountain sprouting bare and twisted trees thrusts jaggedly upward against a bruised, storm-clouded sky. Directly beneath sweeps the commanding title, sans serif type arcing against the blackness. And on either side of this, we have three heavily shadowed but easily recognisable characters, lit from below 
aka monster lighting, and either looking straight ahead or out to either side of the image. And finally, a prominent circle, in this case an enlarged full moon, underpins the entire composition. Gentlemen, I in no way intended this to be self-promotion. In fact, it's more of an unplanned confession. I honestly cannot say if John Alvin's immortal young Frankenstein poster really did influence me in a deeply buried subconscious way, but I've not only just described his artwork for that film poster, but also exactly my own cover for Infogothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror. Oh, the horror. But enough. This isn't about me. It's about one of the truly greatest and most prolific film poster artists of all time, John Alvin. A comprehensive list of his work might take as long as an entire episode of this wonderful podcast. But if I said E.T., Empire of the Sun, Blade Runner, Gremlins, Hook, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, The Lion King, you will have seen and admired Alvin's art, possibly without even realizing it. And a fun fact is that Alvin used his own young daughter as the hand model for the famous Touching Fingers on the Hugo Award-winning E.T. poster. Alvin often collaborated with the equally prolific film campaign graphic designer Anthony Goldschmidt, who designed the layout of this poster and the iconic stone lettering of the title logo. Goldschmidt's work on the titles in Young Frankenstein's opening credits is exquisite, and to my biased eye, as much hammer as universal in tone. But let's return to the poster illustrator, as I'm wont to do. John Alvin used what is termed as multimedia, a range of different techniques for a single piece of artwork. For example, he's quoted as saying that he began the Blade Runner poster in acrylics and finished it in oils. On the Young Frankenstein poster, I believe I can detect the use of an airbrush with some heavier stipple work on the stone lettering and the monster's complexion. My favourite element is probably Gene Wilder's portrait, easily the most frightening component of this artwork and making the monster look gentle and benign by comparison. Wilder's more accurate flesh tones are echoed by the rosy trace of sunset on the horizon, which possibly explains that peach-tinted highlight on the monster's right side. The very caricatured depiction of Igor is placed at the bottom left, which is at first glance an odd choice for such a carefully centred composition. But looking more closely, we can see that this is expertly balanced by the monster's oversized top hat at the top right. There are lots of tiny details to be found as well, from the monster's hat size label to his medic alert bracelet, the tiny airborne bats, and the single lit window on the castle's second floor. All together now. Young Frankenstein is one of Alvin's earlier pieces, and although expertly detailed and composed, it is also more linear and two-dimensional in a graphic sense than the latter work he's better known for. He readily admitted that he became visually influenced by a director whose films he sometimes created posters for, a certain Steven Spielberg. Alvin began working with light and softer outlines in a similar way to Spielberg's cinematography. 
The resulting style became known among Alvin's contemporaries as Alvinizing, which the artist himself interpreted as mythologizing the characters and elements from the film. Using that Spielbergian heavy light, as he called it, with its auras and radiance, set against portentous skies and sweeping clouds, the finished image often takes on the richness and power of a legend. As with all of Alvin's work, his poster for Young Frankenstein encapsulates and celebrates the film it is intended to promote, creating the promise of a great experience, as how he himself put it. And this is yet another testimony as to why an illustration created by an artist's hand can connect us emotionally to a film in ways which I believe now prevalent digital imagery never will. There was a Broadway musical from 2007 to 2009, and it was nominated for three Tony Awards, so it must not have been a flop. So they were going to bring the musical version to television. It was going to be on ABC in the fall of 2020. It was canceled due to COVID, and the project is apparently dead. I'm not a fan of the live modern musical versions of films. Would I see a live musical version of Young Frankenstein? If the cast was right, I suppose, curiosity, but I would immediately be comparing it to this film, which would probably be a disservice to the musical. This is a class five-star material as far as I'm concerned. Your thoughts, your final thoughts on Young Frankenstein? I think I've made it clear. This is just lovely movie. One of my favorites, almost perfect. Enjoy it. I don't know what else to say. It's fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, please do yourself a favor and watch it. Wonderful characters like Frau Blucher. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Into Freely and of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Welcome back. We have a lot of new business and there are so many things that I want to mention that are available for purchase that uh, are going to break the bang for me, I tell you. First is an event that's taking place on March 22nd, and we want to thank our friend Joe Carson for sharing this with the group on Facebook. Godzilla Tokyo SOS will be airing in theaters as part of airing in theaters. Showing in theaters as a Fathom event on March 22nd. I did check. It's on at three theaters here. 
Sounds awfully good. I think it's a Wednesday night, but it starts at seven. Something I'd certainly want to check out. I don't believe that I've ever seen it. I have seen it. It's one of the last Godzilla films uh, made in that particular era. Richard, there is a comic book publisher called American Mythology Productions. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. They've been putting out some monster-related titles. I haven't really been interested because it's sort of their own creation, not really monsters that we know and love. However, they have an issue coming out March 29th. It's called Monster Tag Team. And it's number one. It costs 399 cents. <laughs> but the thing about it is if you get cover C, it is an homage cover to obviously the Marvel monster verse. There is a Dracula on the cover that looks very much like the Marvel Comics Dracula and also a, a werewolf. And this just does sound like a lot of fun. It says Action Aplenty and the Vampire Dracula 2. Check it out. I will put this cover in our show notes so that you can look at it. It's really fantastic. Sounds cool. In other publishing news, Hermes Press, which is the company that puts out the Dark Shadows paperback library in oversized reprints. These are reprints of the books that originally came out in the late 60s when Dark Shadows was on TV, has the latest volumes coming out. Number 30, Barnabas Quentin and the Mad Magician. And number 31, Barnabas Quentin and the Hidden Tomb. However, our good friend Penny Dreadful mentioned in a post to watch the video announcing these because there was a surprise announcement at the end. And I am so excited. They are producing a brand new, in the style of the 1960s Dark Shadows coloring book. Oh, wow. I cannot wait. There's no date yet. They will do a video when they unveil it. Thank you very much, Penny Dreadful, for mentioning that. I don't know that I would have watched that video, and that's really cool to think that that's coming out. I was excited for this. However, it's apparently sold out. It is a book from Camelot Books called The Original Screenplay to King Kong by Edgar Wallace. I went to their website, and it says sold out. That looked to be a very cool oversized volume with the screenplay, plus articles on the film and on Edgar Wallace. So if anyone did pre-order that or can get their hands on it, let us know how it is. There was a magazine back in the day, short run, called World Famous Creatures, which obviously is a, I don't want to say ripoff, that's too cruel, but obviously Famous Monsters adjacent magazine. They have collected all of those issues, and I don't know that there are very many of them, but in a nice, beautiful hardcover book from Fantaco Enterprises, comes out on May 31st. So that is something you might want to keep in mind if uh, you're interested, and you can find that on the Fantaco Enterprises website. Now, as far as movies, Richard, you and I and, and Jonathan, we've all been watching that In Search of Darkness documentary series that is on Shudder and is just absolutely fantastic. I don't know the details, but I did get a message that on March 28th, there is going to be a flash sale. And if you go to the website, now it was originally a Kickstarter. So if you go to Kickstarter and you look up 80s horror doc, you can buy series one, two, or three. They're 69 or $79 each, which... With the easy access we have it now, I just did not think of 
buying it. However, if I could get all three for $119.99, possibly cheaper during this flash sale, that's something that I would have to consider because those are fantastic documentaries. Those are very well done. They are all are on Shutter right now, but you never know how long stuff will last. I know some of the times that Shutter gets stuff, they've got like multi-year deals, but eventually they'll most likely will drop. They were coming up with some titles and like, ooh, I haven't heard of that before. And it's like one of those things where you really need to write a list as you're watching. Yeah, a lot of those 80s movies come from the video store days. They were not movies that I could have seen in a theater in Oklahoma. Yeah. And I all I remember is bad video cover boxes. And I just never had any interest. I had the impression, even though it was not true, that a lot of them were straight to video. And let's be honest, a lot of those were not very good. But every single one of these that they show, I want to see. I need to see that. If nothing else, it's doing a good job of of helping build my watch list, which did not need any help building in the first place. (laughs) Yeah, I've got the same problem. Joe Carson had posted out a Shout Factory release that's coming in May. It's a double feature on Blu-ray, Conquest of Space, and I Married a Monster from Outer Space, which the latter I absolutely adore. and. I have a digital copy that I got from, I think, iTunes. But as far as I know, at least I've never had access to a an official video release of I Married a Monster from Outer Space. So I am thrilled that that's coming out on Blu-ray. The Conquest of Space has actually been nominated for a Rondo Award. I've got the list right in front of me. Best Blu-ray of 2022 came out from Imprint. Mm. You posted that the Catman of Paris was coming. That's from Imprint. They're Australian because we talked about the Haunting of Julia that was coming out on Imprint from Australia. This is another of those labels I'm never really clear. Indicator, they are releasing a Mexico Macabre set. I know you're excited about this or I assume you will be. That that is region free. Okay. Black Pit of Dr. M, The Witch's Mirror, The Brainiac, The Curse of the Crying Woman. I've always wanted to see The Brainiac. That's one that I've heard about. Now, the one that I did pre-order is from Severn Films, and that is Danza Macabra, Volume 1, The Italian Gothic Collection. It is a four-movie set. It's got The Monster of the Opera from 1964. It's got The Seventh Grave from 1965. It's got Scream of the Demon Lover from 1970. And guess what else it has? I don't know. What does it have? It has Lady Frankenstein from 1971. Could my region-free player troubles be over? Hopefully. A couple other box sets. Again, another premier label. Mill Creek Entertainment, <laughs> which uh, historically they've got a bad rap, but they've put out some some decent well, stuff right on the extras. Yeah, they they kind of changed their format. A yeah. So we have the sci-fi from The Vault, four films, 20 million miles to Earth, Creature with the Atom Brain, It Came from Beneath the Sea, and The 30-Foot Bride of Candy Rock. Quite an interesting collection there. I would call it bizarre. (laughs) Yes. I don't really have this one on my radar. It's weird that Harryhausen is in there with. The Bride of Candy Rock is the oddball in the bunch. It is. It's Lou Costello's only solo film. It was made after Abbott and Costello broke up. It was made shortly before his death. This Um, isn't as odd, but we have thrillers from the vault, eight films. And 
the thing is, several of them, six of them go together. They're Karloff movies, The Black Room, The Man They Could Not Hang, Before I Hang, The Man With Nine Lives, The Boogeyman Will Get You, and The Devil Commands. Then we have The Return of the Vampire. Okay, sort of related. I mean, not Karloff, but sweater. And then we have five. Just doesn't seem like that belongs. (laughs) One of these things is not like the other. (laughs) I, I think you could... Yeah, another odd release. I mean, great movies. I mean, you got a lot of fun Karloff films there. You can never go wrong with any of those films. Five <laughs> is like, do they just have some extra room and couldn't didn't have rights to anything else? Why? Five was okay. We didn't dislike it. It has no business being in that box set. Yeah. None whatsoever. Yeah. They keep coming quickly, though, because we've talked about these before. Criterion Collection is releasing targets. I'm thrilled about it. You said that it's light on bonus features. I don't care. I I love that movie. And my last one, I've mentioned this before, Robot Monster 3D. They've done a restoration. Let me tell you, they know how to do a fundraising campaign. I have gotten detailed emails each one makes it seem more exciting than the last, the 3D, the, the restoration, everything, the artwork for the cover. Really looking forward to this release. It should be coming sooner in the final stages. But I do want to mention, if you are in Madison, Wisconsin, they are doing a public screening in 3D of Robot Monster, one of two that they're doing in the Midwest on April 15th. I'm sorry, one more thing. Martin, which I was so excited about, did get delayed. But I love, this is the good side of the internet and of the fandom is people that have pre-ordered it, and this isn't everyone. I have noticed some people that are, hey, that is just fine. We want this done right. You take your time and give us the product that we deserve. That's a good attitude to take when there's a delay rather than, I paid for that. Me, me, where is it? I want to close my section of this with mentioning what's on a couple of other podcasts that we listen to, and then I'll let you use that as a segue to get into some details on that and then take us into the Rondo Award. Our friends at the aforementioned Hammerama podcast this month are talking about when dinosaurs ruled the earth. I also recommend Discover the Horror. They're already up to episode 38. Troy Howarth is a guest this Uh, See, that's a bi-weekly podcast. He's a guest talking about Italian genre cinema. So that should be very good. And Richard, what is the other podcast we recommend people listen to this month? Our good friends, Greg and Genius, over at the Nightmare Junkhead podcast have once again graciously invited us to partake of their In the Mouth of March Madness month-long celebration. They've been doing this now for a lot of years, actually. We have graciously been invited to come back and talk about movies from 1983. We might be talking about (laughs) two of four films, Amityville 3D. We might be talking about Christine. We might be talking about Sleepaway Camp. And we might be talking about, what was the other film? Cujo? That kind of gave it away there, didn't we? Those guys are so much fun to record with. Yeah. Laugh nonstop. And it, I just love it that we we are like their go-tos for that that era when of their March Madness. That feels very special. It does. Folks, tune in to Nightmare Junkhead. And now we've mentioned it a couple times. 
Richard, why don't you start us off talking about the Rondo Awards? I want to start off by saying, first and foremost, a thank you to listener Scott Pliskin, who nominated us for Best Podcast, which is an incredibly jam-packed, very, very tough Mm. category. This is our second time being nominated. We're not going to campaign and post things and stuff. That's just not the way that Jeff and I work. Uh, But we are very, very grateful for the nomination. Uh, If you are a listener and nominated us and I I didn't see your name because it's a very convoluted process to go onto the message board and nominate. And I scroll through. I didn't. I don't think anyone else did. But if they did and I'm missing your name. I, I please apologize. Uh, I apologize. And please let us know because we'd love to recognize you for nominating us. Yeah. And we need the address where to send the check. <laughs> what I wanted to do was to take a look at, at some of our listeners and some of our friends who have been nominated. We are not endorsing anyone. We're not uh, doing any of that. We're just encouraging you, if you feel so inclined, to go to the rondoaward.com website and vote as you so feel, whether it's for us or somebody else or another category altogether. My disclaimer is that if we missed someone in this process, then again, I wholeheartedly apologize I I almost hesitate doing this because I don't want to miss somebody, but I wanted to also recognize the people that I I know and have talked to and and our friends and listeners. If we miss somebody, let us know. And I've got a backup list. So hopefully between the two of us, not promising we'll get everyone, but we should get a good chunk. I will start off the best podcast, which is category 19. I just wanted to mention the other shows. As I said, there's so many shows. A lot of shows I'm not even familiar with. I know some more that you might be than I, but there's a lot on there. So I wanted to recognize our good friend, Bill Mize, for Bill Watches Movies, the gang over at the B Movie Cast, Diecast Movie Podcast, Steve Turek and Friends. This is the podcast overall, but I think that it also includes the Hammerama because that's a podcast and a podcast. Our friend Derek over at Monster Kid Radio himself, a former nominee and a former winner, the Nashi cast, uh, Rod Barnett and Troy Gwynn discussing the films of Paul Nashi. Terror at Collinwood with the uh, horror host Penny Dreadful, we know as a listener. I'm not the dark shadows aficionado that Jeff is, but I have listened to Terror at Collinwood. Did I miss any podcasts on the list that we should give a shout out to? Yeah, I would add Discover the Horror. I mentioned that earlier as a podcast to listen to. That's new this year. And it's fantastic. I'm not going to go category for category. Just going to go for those categories where there are people that that I know are listeners or are friends. So let's start off with the favorite commentator category. Troy and Rod, uh, who did the commentary work for Black Candles, not a Nashy film. Justin Humphreys, as we mentioned, for Conquest of Space. Troy Howarth for Four Flies on Gray Velvet. Let's go on to Best Independent Limited Release Film of 2022. Give a shout out to Mr. Josh Kennedy for his latest film, Saturnalia, Cave Girl from Outer Space. Book of the Year. So many great books have been nominated, but one immediately stands out. We talked about it just a a few moments ago. Chopped Meat, British Horror of the 1970s from We Belong Dead. 
featuring our good friend, Mr. Jeff Owens. How many reviews did you do in that book? I think five. Wow. Okay. Congratulations, sir, on your indirect recognition, your participation in that book. Giant Bug Cinema, A Monster Kid's Guide, edited by uh, Mark Bailey. Congratulations on getting that uh, published and nominated for a Rondo Award. We would be sorely remiss, and I'm fairly certain the entire world has heard about this book (laughs) right now. I Was a Teenage Monster Hunter, How I Met Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and more by Mr. Sam Irvin. I will say for the price, it's an amazing book. There's a lot of information in that book. Troy Howarth has another book out, uh, Make Them Die Slowly, The Kinetic Cinema of Umberto Lenzi. Best Magazine column, I will give a shout out to Ansel Farage for his Asylum for the Psychotronic in We Belong Dead, which I have read that in other issues, and he does a fantastic job with that. Congratulations. Best Magazine cover. This one's a tough category because I know three of the artists and have their work on my wall. Daniel Horn's been nominated for his Plague of the Zombies cover, Classic Monsters of the Movies, issue 28, which is an amazing cover. Mr. Frederick Cooper, listener of the show, who did the amazing cover for Horror Hound, issue 93, War of the Worlds. And Mark Maddox, nominated for two of his magazines last year, Little Shop of Horrors, number 48, which, is it The Crawling Eye? Yes. Yes. The Crawling Eye, yes. Scream, number 40, he did uh, Nosferatu. Best website, there's The Bloody Pit of Rod, Rod Barnett's website was nominated I know Dr. Gangrene's Sanitarium nominated. I don't believe Dr. Gangrene is a listener, but I will give him a shout out because I love his work. I know that you can do write-ins and I would absolutely recommend Jeff's website, Classic Horrors, because you put so much work into that website. You should have been nominated in this category. I didn't nominate anyone this year. That's a whole nother story. Did I miss anybody? I've got a few I want to add, some for selfish reasons. You didn't mention just the magazine in general. And so uh, since I've been published in Scary Monsters and We Belong Dead, I will mention those both have been nominated, as well as Horror Hound, which has been for many years one of my favorite magazines that has a column. They came from the crypt by John Kitley, is nominated for Best Column. I did want to call out the horror host. I wanted to call out Pity Dreadful nominated. And then two that I met when I went to the the thing in California, Lord Bloodraw and Mr. Lobo, I both met. And I do want to mention, and this is such a weird category, best graphic presentation, that book that we got, uh, Halftone Horrors, the history of horror movie comic books, that has been nominated. And that is... uh, Fantastic. I will say, I felt that should have been in the best book category. Yeah, I, well, Rondo in categories, you know, we've yeah, been over that a million times. Book. Let's wrap up. You maybe have already mentioned, Richard, what you're doing on your blog. Anything you want to add that you haven't already talked about? Well, you know, March will be a quiet month. I will simply say that I'm thinking about tying in to what we've got lined up for our films in April. Hopefully there'll be some more films that I'll be taking a look at and adding it to the mix and onto the website. What are you doing in your neck of the woods? Everybody does it. I can't not jump on the bandwagon. I'm having March madness. So Mondays in March, movies with the word madness. 
in the title. <laughs> we've got the mad monster. We've got the mad ghoul and we've got the mad room. So every Monday, some kind of movie dealing with madness. And I've got a decision coming up on my Friday. We mentioned the TV terror guide in the 70s TV movies. I'm in 79. The 70s are soon going to be over. And we've talked before about how the, the line is not solid between decades. So I'm sure I'll go a little bit further, but I'm just not sure how much further I'll go into the 80s with that series. A lot of that will depend on whether I decide what I'm going to do next. So but we you, could be going up to 99. Do you consider miniseries to be films? or is that I do. And I think that's actually the last one in 79 is Salem's Lot. If yes, I was thinking that. Yes. So that's coming up. I'm going to go ahead and say what I'm doing for April because I realize now I think we were on two different tracks when we thought. Oh, I mean, not okay. that we couldn't still participate, but... I was sort of taking March Madness a step further and tying in with this episode, not our April episode. And I was going to do April Fools and do some more horror comedies. Oh, okay. So that was what I had in mind. They might be more horror spoofs in the vein of Young Frankenstein, maybe April Fool's Day, maybe Transylvania 6, 5000, maybe Saturday the 14th, maybe Student Bodies. A couple of these we saw on the In Search of Horror Tell us what we're doing next month, and then I bet people can guess what you're waving. Uh, and, and I will commit to it, actually. Oh, so that's I'm going to do that. So coming up in April, we are going to have another one of those episodes where we highlight a particular person, take a look at their filmography. And no, it's not an actor. It's not necessarily someone who's exclusive in any one category, but we're talking about a William Castle, such a, a, a large and fun filmography uh, to choose from. And of course, some films that are, are often talked about and, and are true classics. Yeah, we're not doing those because that'd be too easy. We're going to pick two of his lesser known films. We're going to be taking a look at Macabre from 1958 and Nightwalker from 1964. Now, if you want to play along at home, I can tell you that Macabre is available currently to stream for free with ads on Tubi. You can also rent it on Amazon Prime for $2.99, or you can buy the Warner Archive Collection DVD for about $10. Nightwalker, a little harder to get a hold of. It is currently not streaming anywhere. There is a copy of it on YouTube that supposedly comes from Universal, but I don't think it's really Universal. Um, because the quality is clearly not 100%. It is available, though, on Blu-ray from Shout Factory for about $20. Seek out those films, play along at home, offer up your thoughts, your feedback. Let us know what you thought about the movies we covered this time. Let us know what you think about the movies we're covering next time. That's all I've got. We will go out with You Knew It Was Coming, If You Know Us At All. Putting on the Ritz by Dr. Frederick Frankenstein and the Creature from the 1974 film Young Frankenstein. Take care, everyone. Richard, take care. See you next time. <laughs> if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes or cutaway coat, perfect fits.
dressed up like a million dollar trooper Trying mighty hard to look like Gary Cooper Come, let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. 